Welcome, brethren, to the Feast of Tabernacles 2016. I'd like to begin by asking a question today, which is the title of the sermon, Why do we live in temporary dwellings? The Feast of Tabernacles pictures the millennium, but this feast is also called in the Bible a Feast of Booths or a Feast of Temporary Dwellings. So why is it that God commanded us to live in temporary dwellings during the Feast of Tabernacles? If we turn to Leviticus chapter 23, the chapter in which the holy days are outlined, beginning in verse 40, we read, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, willow boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. And it shall be a statute forever in your generations, and you will celebrate it in the seventh month, the seventh month of God's calendar. And you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Eternal, your God. So why did God give us this command? In the millennium, a time which is depicted by the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of God. Jesus Christ will be administering God's government, ruling all nations, as it says, with a rod of iron, and every person on earth will know and understand clearly the purpose for human life. No longer will the knowledge about the reason why God made us be suppressed and twisted and perverted by diabolical forces. People everywhere will know the reason they were born. And all over the world, the true religion of God will be the only religion. And every facet of society, true values, will be recaptured. And the rejoicing will consequently be very great. But what does all this exciting news about the way the world will be then have to do with us living in temporary dwellings now? Well, let's start by asking a question. What is a tabernacle or a booth? A tabernacle or booth, or sometimes as it's rendered in the scriptures, a tent, is a temporary shelter. The name Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths means really the Feast of Temporary Shelters or Temporary Dwellings. And it was among the feasts God gave to ancient Israel to keep them mindful of his purpose, at least of a stage of his purpose. But the Israelites rebelled against God and as a result, after many years and opportunities to change and repent, their rebellion was ongoing. And as a result, they went into captivity. Later, a Jewish remnant returned to their homeland under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that period witnessed a revival of true religion, during which the following remarkable discovery was made and recorded in Scripture. If you turn to the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8 and verse 14. This is an interesting Scripture. It says in verse 14, And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, that is the Feast of Tabernacles, and that they should fetch olive branches, pine branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, the branches of thick trees, to make booths, as it is written. Now they found in the law of God that all Israel was to do this during the Feast of Tabernacles. And notice, if you go down to verse 16, so the people went forth and made booths and sat under the booths. And notice, this is in your Bible. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, 
the children of Israel had not done so. Since the death of Joshua to the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Feast of Tabernacles had never been properly kept. You know, the law they had rediscovered was in Leviticus 23, as we had read earlier. As you read in verse 41, it will be a statute in your generations forever. But they didn't do it. You know, it doesn't matter what the booth or the dwelling is made out of. Back then, they were made of branches. Today, they may be canvas tents, aluminum trailers, brick motels, hotels, or condominiums. The point is, they are a temporary residence. Now, we today don't go and cut thousands of branches down at a feast site. Greenpeace would probably have something to say to us. But why was Israel to spend this time in temporary abodes? Why did God put this as a command? <clears throat> now, one answer is in verse 43 that we read, that they may remember that God brought them out of Egypt and led them in the wilderness and took care of them for 40 years. You know, after the tribes of Israel had come out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before going in and possessing their more permanent dwelling. And while in the wilderness, they had no permanent dwelling. They wandered from place to place. They set up their tents. They stayed a while. Then they pulled their tents down and they moved on. And during all this time, God took care of them. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter. God caused Moses to write here a little reminder. This is Deuteronomy, of course, was written just before they went into the permanent land, before they occupied the promised land. And in verse 5, he explains something. It says, And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. That's a miracle. I don't care who made your shoes. Walking in them for forty years, they're going to wear out. But they didn't. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. God wanted to remind them that he took care of them. All that time in the wilderness, during trials and difficulties, he took care of them. He brought them through it. If they were faithful, and he will do the same with us. And that's a great lesson of the Feast of Booths. The Israelites were heirs to a land. They were to inherit a land that God had promised them. But they were not yet inheritors. They were merely heirs waiting to come in to become the inheritors of the land of Canaan. That's why they lived in temporary dwellings for 40 years. They were sojourners. They were pilgrims. And they lived in a world that was a wilderness in the Sinai or Arabia, wherever they were. But they were not part of it. Their inheritance was elsewhere. We are to remember our inheritance is elsewhere. It's not of this world. Abraham, too, had been a pilgrim. So were Isaac and Jacob. Notice, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews the 11th chapter, and we begin in verse 8, Hebrews 11 and verse 8. We read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going. Abraham had faith. What is faith? Sometimes we mistake faith for belief. Faith is much more than belief. Mere belief is not faith. Acting on a belief is faith. Abraham was faithful because he did something. You know, if we obey, our faith becomes stronger. Our willingness to obey the next time becomes stronger. That's what faith really is. Faith is a combination of action and belief, or actions driven by belief. If we believe and don't act, we have no faith. 
But Abraham was faithful. But he went to a land not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. They were heirs too. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received the strength to conceive, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is on the seashore. And all these died in faith. Abraham died, Sarah died, Jacob, Isaac, they're both dead. All these died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, and they were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's a very, very important scripture. It's a very important scripture that relates to the Feast of Tabernacles and why we live in temporary dwellings. Abraham looked for a new Jerusalem. He looked for that glorious kingdom of God. And let me remind you, the kingdom of God is not the millennium. The millennium is ruled by the kingdom of God, but human beings in the millennium cannot be part of the kingdom. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They're on their way to the kingdom. They will have that opportunity. But we're offered something much greater than the millennium. The millennium is not for us. It's for all those people who will live in it and be ruled by us. But the glorious kingdom of God, Abraham looked for that. He and other saints, they died in the faith. They died without having received the promises, the inheritance. They saw them afar off and were persuaded of them. And they embraced them and they confessed they were strangers and pilgrims. They confessed, we're not part of this world and its culture. We're looking for something better. And that's a beautiful picture for us. You know, Christians are also called strangers and pilgrims. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul, from the kinds of things this world wants us to do that we know are against God's law. Abstain from those. We're not part of this culture. You know, we are in a wilderness. This world is a wilderness spiritually. But we're not part of it. Notice John, the Gospel of John, well, Gospel that John was given, not really his Gospel, but uh, John chapter 17 and verse 10. Notice what Christ said here. Actually, in verse 11. He said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. He's praying for us and for his disciples at the time. But these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. In verse 14 he says, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We are separate from this world. We're not really part of its culture. We are heirs to something else. But we're not yet inheritors. Our permanent dwelling place is the promised kingdom of God. Notice Revelation chapter 18. Revelation, the 18th chapter. Verse 4. John's reading here and he, writing here and he says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. We are to come out of this world. Now, we have to live in it. We have to work in it. We have to function in it. But we are not part of its culture. And we must reject this culture. And that's what this is saying. The Feast of Temporary Dwellings help us 
be reminded of that. It also reminds us of something else. That we ourselves are temporary beings. We're mortal. We're made of the dust of the ground. Human existence is truly fleeting. You know the old saying, here today, gone tomorrow. It's very true for us. James, book of James, chapter 4. James, the fourth chapter, and verse 14. Here the apostle writes, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. That's what we are. We, we are here for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever. But that's still a short time in the scope of human history. We're not given much time. It seems like a long time to us when we're young. It doesn't seem quite so long when we get a little more uh, experienced. But, you know, it is true. We're not permanent. We are a temporary housing. And only a few people on the earth today are blessed with the knowledge of what this life is all about. I hope we realize that. You know, John 6:44. no one can come to me except the Father call him. Each one of us has been specifically selected, not by Jesus Christ, but by God the Father himself, who has deliberately, with intention, opened your mind by a miracle to understand this truth. And that's a miracle. And we need to remember that. But most people who've ever lived have come and gone without realizing why they were born, what their true potential has been. In the millennium, however, the whole world will understand the purpose for life and the human potential that goes with it. And they will comprehend that during this life we are mortal heirs who may become immortal inheritors of the kingdom of God. By living in temporary dwellings during the feast, we portray a world during the millennium in which everyone will understand what the truth is all about. All those mortals, all of us today, are destined to die. We cannot escape it. And only by receiving the germ of eternal life from God's Spirit can a person hope to live forever. As Christians, we have that eternal life abiding in us. Notice 1 John chapter 5. Uh, 1 John, the fifth chapter. Verse 10. And we read here, actually beginning in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And that this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, this is an interesting scripture. And some use it to twist it to say we already have eternal life. Now, this is not what it's saying. False religions, be they you know, Catholicism or various forms of Protestantism or Pentecostalism, which teach we already have eternal life, use this scripture. But what they fail to understand is the tense that's used in some of the verbs in John, 1 John 5.10 is a Greek tense called the aorist tense, which means it's an ongoing act. It's not finished. In other words, he is giving us eternal life. He's in the process of doing it. It's not yet complete. We have the potential for eternal life. In this life, we are temporary beings. And in this life, if God didn't intervene, when we die, that's it. We die forever. Unless there's an intervention of God. And that intervention is our calling. And if and only if we accept that calling, 
repent of wrong ways, seek forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ and the waters of baptism, only then in that forgiven state during is the time when God gives us his Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands of his ministers. And this giving of God's Spirit subsequent to repentance, true repentance and baptism, conceives us as a child of God, yet a growing embryo in the womb of the church that will only be born into eternal life as a child of God, a son or daughter of God the Father upon a resurrection from the dead at the return of Jesus Christ and the sounding of that seventh trumpet. And that is the only route to eternal life. And it requires us to accept the fact that Christ's sacrifice paid the penalty of our sins. The other aspect is that unless we repent and deliberately and willingly and willfully choose to obey God and his law and develop that obedience to God's way of life and the character that goes with it, unless we do that, that spiritual embryo will be aborted. That, however, is our decision. It is our decision whether we choose to obey God or not to obey Him. Now, some false religions say that once you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. That is a satanic lie. In their ignorance, they will quote Acts 16, verse 31, which says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They conveniently forget other statements, like Luke chapter 6, where Christ says in verse 47, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? In other words, to accept Christ or to believe in Christ means to trust him enough to obey him. And today we have that glorious opportunity. Now, we don't ask to be called. Um, there are some, perhaps, uh, some who don't fully understand that, who reason that their chances of success may be a little better in the second resurrection. And, you know, they might say, well, yeah, I don't want to be baptized now because... Well, I might not make it. It's pretty tough. But, you know, in the second resurrection, it would be a lot better. No Satan around. Uh, it'd be much, much easier. I think I'll wait and take my chances then. Well, that's a very nice theory. There's only one little problem with it, and that is we don't get to choose which resurrection we're in. Well, we do in a way, but we don't get to choose between the first and the second. That's the Father's choice. In this age, if we are called, we are given an opportunity for the first resurrection, which is called in the Bible the better resurrection. And if we reject it, only the third resurrection awaits, which is called the second death. Death is the end result of life without God's intervention. And that is because we are temporary creatures. We do not possess eternal life at this time. These bodies of ours, with all their imperfections, their selfish desires, their weaknesses, their aches, their pains, are only meant to last long enough for us to qualify for eternal life once God calls us. Now, everyone we know will be called, either in this life or in the second resurrection, but they're only meant to last long enough for us to have that opportunity to build righteous character. The Apostle Peter expressed this thought, getting along in years and realizing that his hour of martyrdom was approaching, as Jesus had foretold to him. He wrote, if you turn over to 2 Peter, a very interesting, uh, very interesting piece of scripture here. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, notice what Peter says. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. In other words, he was going to die. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things, 
after my decease. And in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the, the Moffat version writes, I know that my tent must be folded up very soon, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. In other words, he compares his body to a tent, not a building stone, but he compares it to something that's very temporary. A tent that sooner or later will be folded up and put away. Is that what we think of our physical body? Too many people do not. They fret and worry about the shape of their nose, the color of their hair, the wrinkles and creases that come with age, and sometimes they spend a lot of money trying to uh, reverse the aging process. You know, uh, my uh, sons used to have a music teacher, a wonderful lady, uh, great music teacher, great piano teacher. But she, um, in, her, her, in her bathroom, she had buckets and buckets and buckets of various types of cosmetics, which my sons used to uh, jokingly refer to as polyphila. But we try to cover up the aging process. And people can spend their lives in anxious pursuit of more luxurious ways to pamper themselves, to clothe themselves, shelter themselves, transport themselves, etc. And they forget there's another purpose. God caused us to live in temporary dwellings to help us be reminded of these things. You know, if we don't think of that, we miss the point. And if we don't understand these things, we don't know what life is all about. The world out there doesn't know. They don't understand we are pilgrims eventually preparing for an eternal existence. For called Christians in this age, for people who are of the true faith, this is a very important lesson of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you consider eternity for a moment and look back at this life, does it really matter that you may not be able to afford to have the things that you would really like? Uh, if you have flat feet or a bad back or your tent is defective in some little way, maybe it's more defective with a serious or even a terminal disease. But none of our tents were designed to last forever. And it was only meant to last long enough, especially after God calls you, for you to inherit an eternal inheritance. And God will give you an eternal and permanent house. It is meant in this age, our bodies are, to house a mind. A mind that God works with. And to give that mind time to make a firm decision. A durable decision. A permanent desire that with all its might, it will please God the Father and Jesus Christ. You know, when God sees that mind develop in that way, he knows it will be loyal through all eternity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. Notice Paul's writing again. Oops, I'm in 1 Corinthians here. 2 Corinthians will work better. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with human hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, in this body, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. And we do. Now, sometimes if we're really healthy, we don't think about it. But out there, listening to this, I know there are people who are very ill. I know there are some who are severely handicapped. And you are longing for this eternal body. We all should, every last one of us. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. We don't really have eternal life now. In verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us his Spirit 
as a guarantee or a deposit or a down payment. You know, if we are to overcome and if we are to endure to the end, then we will be made immortal. Paul, who himself was a tent maker by occupation, understood this. And he used the analogy of a tent when he preached. And he understood the reason for which we were born into these physical temporary bodies. And he comprehended our incredible potential. Notice a scripture he wrote in Philippians. The book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 and verse 20. It says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. We will actually be made in the same way that Jesus Christ is today. That's hard for us to imagine. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself, we are to become members of the permanent God family as Christ is a member. That is the purpose for human life. That's the only goal that really counts. But why the feast of temporary dwellings? You know, why are we to live in temporary dwellings during the Feast of Tabernacles? Certainly, we've mentioned a few reasons. But sometimes people say, well, you know, it's kind of silly. Why should I save a second tithe to do this? I don't have to do that. I don't have to. Uh, I, I'm sure I can learn just as much. Now, at times, there are people who can't go to the feast, hence these tapes are made. And uh, we provide them. We know you'd want to be there. But sometimes the question is asked, why do we do this? Well, God knew it was important enough to command it. The ancient nation of physical Israel was to dwell in these booths during the Feast of Booths to commemorate the fact they were once pilgrims living in tents waiting to inherit the promised land. As true Christians having the Holy Spirit, we are to see the spiritual analogy to that. We humans are temporary beings waiting to inherit the kingdom of God. And we are merely pilgrims in this present life. Our human existence is just a time of preparation for eternity. And living in a temporary booth or dwelling during the feast depicts the whole uh, world understanding this awesome purpose for human life. But the feast is also a time to rejoice that this life is not all there is. And in the millennium, millions of human beings will realize this. And in the course of what's pictured during the last great day, all humanity that has ever drawn breath will have their glorious chance. Billions and billions of people, billions of babies will be raised to be raised <laughs> and to be given this opportunity. The Bible makes a definite correlation. And this is interesting. A definite correlation between rejoicing and dwelling in booths during the feast. You know, in Leviticus 23.40, God told the Israelites to build the booths and he told them to rejoice in them, as we read earlier. And in Nehemiah, let's just turn to Nehemiah. Book of Nehemiah, back in Nehemiah chapter 8 again. And just take another look at that, because it's quite important. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Verse 16, Then the people went out and, and uh, brought them and made booths, each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyards or the courts of the house of God and the open square of the water gate and the open square of the gate of Ephraim. And so the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths. For since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until the days of the children of Israel, they had not done so and there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he, Nehemiah, read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly 
according to the prescribed manner. In this incident to the book of Nehemiah, the people realized how temporary they were. They were surrounded by enemies. And they finally clued in that the source of their preservation was not their physical strength, not their armies or their weapons, but God's power to protect them and to preserve them. And we are going to have to know that and know that very well in the days ahead. There could be great difficulties and trials and persecutions. But if we know what we're here for and we know very well what's at stake, God will help us have the courage to do the right thing. And that's what these people were doing. They realized without God, they were temporary. But God is the agent of preservation. They were told to remember their trek in the wilderness. And one of the sections of the Bible that can be profitably studied at the Feast of Tabernacles, maybe in your rooms at night, is uh, the book of Numbers, chapters 9 through 21. And we're not going to read that now. But most of what we know about Israel's 40 years and living in tents in the wilderness is contained in those few chapters. But there are also some tremendously vital lessons there that we need to think about and apply to our Christian journey, our Christian trek through a spiritual wilderness. If we look over for a moment in Deuteronomy chapter 8 again, Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, um, which again, Deuteronomy being a restatement of the law, just a, a reminder to the nation. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1, he says here, God says through Moses, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And in verse 2, goes on, And you shall remember, heavy emphasis on the word remember, that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. For what reason? To humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart. What's the level of commitment here? Whether you will keep his commandments or not. And so he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. Sometimes people feel, well, I've got a trial. God must not be pleased with me. Well, maybe he is pleased with you. Maybe he wants to see what you do in good times and in bad times. Will you be faithful under both conditions? He allowed you to hunger and he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do we live according to this word? That's a test. That is a test. But even in their difficulties, as we read earlier, we read this a moment ago, your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell those 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. And if you do, verse 7, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of springs, of fountains that flow out of the hills and valleys, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs, pomegranates, oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of the hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. And it goes on to think 
Also, don't think that you did this. This is a gift to us. We live today in a spiritual wilderness, but God wants us to bring us in to a paradise. The paradise for us is not the physical millennium. It is the kingdom of God. But for mankind who lives past the tribulation ahead, this has to be this physical world that lives under the law of God and they will see and have evidence that this way really works. As I said, today we live in a spiritual wilderness. While there is beauty in the world, and there is, there's also great ugliness. While there is great potential, there's also great evil. Humans who have potential often waste their lives in stupidity, denying the obvious that God created us. They seek thrills in immorality or drugs. And it leads to no good. It only leads to harm. And we live in a land in which its culture teaches us that good is evil and evil is good. Now we can, of course, in God's church, sometimes have hard times. Perhaps financially, perhaps family issues, job issues, illness. But you know, we're still here. Somehow we're not destroyed. We're still clothed. We're still able to do what God says. He preserves us, not by our might, but by his power. The more we honor, the more we respect, the more we obey him and get into the habit of that, the more he knows he can trust us eternally. Our life in the spiritual wilderness is intended to provide us with that time of development and testing. And our life, our Christian life, is a period of that testing to see whether or not we will qualify for this internal inheritance. God didn't pick anyone who can't make it. Sometimes we say, well, I can't do this. Yes, you can. If you can't, he wouldn't have picked you. He wouldn't have given you this opportunity at this time. He doesn't make error. And that is why God wants to find out what we're made of and what we love and what we put first, where our loyalty lies. That is why we're now mortal, temporary. God is going to find out where we stand before we can inherit eternal life. He does not need a Lucifer character in the kingdom. And that's why he said, as we read in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, he humbled you. He does that to us. Sometimes he allows us to hunger or have trials. But he brings us through those trials. And in the end, we know that we could not have done it on our own and that we know that we live truly by every word of God and not by the things of this age. And that's a lesson to learn while we are at the Feast of Tabernacles or to be reminded of. You know, God was ever-present with Israel. It's interesting that in the days when they were in the desert, he was a pillar of fire to them at night and a great cloud during the day. And they always had to be ready at a moment's notice, day or night, to move. When the cloud picked up, they picked up. And they had to pack up their temporary shelters and get on the move. Notice Numbers. We referred to Numbers earlier, but let's take a look quickly at Numbers chapter 9. Numbers, the ninth chapter, beginning in verse 15. Now on the day the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after the children of Israel would journey, and in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. 
At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. At the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. And even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. And so it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped and according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. And so it was um, that when the cloud remained only from evening to morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, they would journey whether by day or by night. And it goes on to talk about this. This cloud was constantly with them. They could see it every day. This is remarkable. You know, they, they could see this and yet even at times they, they sinned terribly. But it's remarkable in a couple of ways. They had this literal visual reminder of God's presence for 40 years. And yet, as I said, they sinned. How could this be? They simply got used to it. It became commonplace. Even a visual reminder of God before their eyes became old hat. They lost their awe and excitement that this should have really provided. And this is a risk we run. Beware of losing the vision. Beware of losing the excitement of the vision, the knowledge and the value of this great rarity that we've been given, knowledge and truth that we've been granted, lest we, like Israel, cease to see our calling as unique and of exquisite value. Now, we don't see a pillar of fire or cloud, but you and I have been given the very spirit of the Father and understanding that even the prophets would have wanted to have. You know, please consider this following scripture. This is one of the scriptures that truly amazes me every time I read it. Hopefully it will you as well. But it's in First Peter. First Peter. Chapter 1 and verse 10. Peter's talking about our salvation, which is really another word for the gospel, I guess. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, it's God's Spirit, those people who will be in Hebrews 11, God's Spirit had to be in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. But notice verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you. People called in this age since the days of the apostles. Reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. I hope we are aware of the value of what we've been given. You know, Israel was not left alone in the wilderness. God was with them. It was a visual sign. But they lost awareness of that being that was with them. But just as they, we also are not alone. In this temporary dwelling, in this world in which we live, we are not alone. And it is not far away cloud that should be reminding us of the presence of God with us, but his spirit that dwells in us, that causes us to understand the Bible, it causes to us to understand the plan of God, something that others just do not have at this time. Not because there's anything special about us, just because God has given that to us. This understanding, this spirit of God that is placed in us is our cloud and pillar of fire. It's our spiritual eye. Never forget this. 
never cease to value it and be awed by it. You know, when we wander in a wilderness, suddenly Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they may have had to move suddenly, just as scripture indicated. Maybe they'd just gotten their tents set up and all of a sudden the cloud would go up again. I'm sure there was some grumbling. Maybe some were particularly fond of a choice location near a big rock or something where their children could play. No matter what, they had to keep their eye on the cloud or that pillar of fire. We who live as God's called out ones, we live in a spiritual wilderness. And we might sometimes ask ourselves, how responsive are we to God's direction? Does the cloud move up? And sometimes we say, no, we're not going anywhere. That's a danger. Are we prepared to forsake any and every earthly tie that would hinder us from obeying God? Because if we obey him first, God will look after us. And he will bless you. It's pretty hard for God to bless someone who's disobeying them. Do we bless our children if they are disobedient? I don't think so. But are we? Are we responsive to God's direction? Israel was not very responsive at times. And most of Israel's actions in the wilderness their rebellions against the leaders God had appointed, their lusting, their complaining, were examples of what we should not do. But they were recorded that way expressly for our learning, as 1 Corinthians 10.6 says. These were examples for us. And they need to be studied. Notice again 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 17, it says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear or in reverent fear, in respect to God. Nehemiah 9, again, uh, we read a bit of that earlier, is a chapter we should read often as it has many lessons for us who are temporary dwellers in this wilderness. A wilderness of evil behavior, of evil entertainment, of foul language, of corrupt politics, corruption, moral bankruptcy. Unfortunately, that's the world we live in. There are many lies Lies like homosexuality is just a genetic proclivity. That is absurd. There is absolutely not a single verifiable scientific study to support that. Lots of people want to think that such behavior is normal. Or adultery or fornication is just normal. Well, it isn't normal. It is wrong. And it always produces hurt. Sin has a price. A very expensive price. Our society wants people to think like dressing like a slob is fashionable. Well, that's pretty stupid. And people are being led like pigs with a ring in their nose by marketers. They don't think. You know, we in God's church are teaching God's standards. And since the days of the temple and all through the ages of God's church, people have understood that when we come before God, we need to spruce up a bit because we have to come respectfully before the Lord God, the emperor of the entire universe. We don't do that to impress man, but out of respect to our Father. The Lord God of the universe on Sabbaths and holy days, it helps us be in a better frame of mind. Little things. We have to be careful of the influence of the wilderness on us. Or are we unduly influenced by those scorpions of the wilderness? So think about the meaning of temporary dwellings. 
Staying in temporary dwellings, therefore, portrays Israel's pilgrimage in the wilderness and our own pilgrimage as Christians in a present spiritual wilderness, an evil world. And even for humanity, in the millennium, humans understand that they are pilgrims in life. They will keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium because they will need that reminder as well as they strive to develop God's character in the temporary bodies waiting for their change to eternal life. But we also need to consider one other event that has to do with temporary dwellings. At Jesus' return to earth, the nations of Israel will have been in captivity for their sin, justifiably in captivity. But he will deliver them and he will lead them into a physical inheritance. They will go into that millennium world to be trained, to be taught, to be led by those who have been born spirit beings. Notice Isaiah chapter 65. Book of Isaiah chapter 65 beginning in verse 9. Isaiah 65 verse 9. It says here, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah an heir of my mountains, my governments. My elect shall inherit it. My servants shall dwell there. Very important. As the newly delivered Israelites make their way to the land that they will inherit, they will be led by an elect group. And you know, temporary dwellings will once again provide shelter for them as the Bible goes on to say. We know this time foreshadows a much better period in humanity's existence. Turn to Hosea chapter 12, Hosea the 12th chapter, and verse 9. Speaking of this time, they will again live in tents for a little while while their permanent dwellings are being built because the world will be demolished. Verse 12 Verse 9 of Hosea chapter 12, we read, But I am the Lord your God, ever since the land of Egypt. I will make again you dwell in, I will make you again dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. They will dwell for a while in tents, while there's reconstruction, but they will keep the Feast of Tabernacles annually in temporary dwellings as a reminder. We foreshadow this very happy event of the restoration of this world to be coherent with God's intentions and his laws. The time of Israel's return from captivity and eventually the whole world's blessing, there will be, like I say, no, virtually no buildings left, but they will joyfully at that time dwell in the temporary dwellings until their permanent dwellings are built. It will be a joyful time to be freed from slavery, freed from pain, suffering, horror. This Feast of Booths is a very rich time in its meaning. But there are many lessons we need to consider when we ask the question, why does God command us to leave our homes, perfectly good homes, and dwell in temporary dwellings during the feast? Well, we need to think about the meaning as you open the door to your motel room, as you lie down in a bed that's not your own, as you eat under circumstances different than what you're used to, as you dig into your suitcase looking for that other pair of socks, think about what you're portraying. You need to think temporary. Think pilgrim. Think heir. Think understanding. The purpose of our calling and the purpose of our life a time when the temporary will become permanent. And then you can rejoice and have a great feast of temporary dwellings.